0: Revelation chapter number four, and we're going to take a tour this morning. didn't know you were going on a tour today, did you? I'm going to be your tour. Well, actually, John's going to be our tour guide. I'm just going to relate to you what John has to say about the throne of God. And, you know, I don't know about you, but when I think about heaven, there's a lot of different things that I think about. I think about what the the end of the book of Revelation promises us. It's going to be a place of no more tears, a place of no more pain a place of no more goodbyes, uh, all of the things that are going to be missing from heaven that we have to deal with in this broken world that we live in right now. I think about the fact uh, that we are going to be uh, part of that great multitude that's going to be around the throne, that's going to be singing and praising God and uh, bowing in his presence for eternity. Uh, I think about that aspect of heaven. I think about the streets of gold, the gates of pearl, Uh, As one person said, I'd really like to see the oyster that made that pearl. Uh, You know, uh, that's a joke. You'll get it later. Uh, But uh, just so many aspects about heaven, so many things that we can think about and and talk about. And uh, we see a lot of that in the book of Revelation and uh, certainly other places in Scripture. But this morning, we're going to take a look at chapter 4. We do know that heaven is going to be a glorious place and uh, throughout Scripture, we have little glimpses here and there of different things that will be there, different things that will not be there, who will be there, who will not be there. And uh, chapter 4 really is begins a new major division in the book of Revelation. So several weeks ago, months ago now, uh, we started this series and uh, we looked at chapter 1 and then that was kind of one division. And then chapter 2 and chapter 3 was another division where uh, Jesus had a personal message to the seven churches of Asia. And I do think it would be correct to say that these seven churches represent churches throughout all of history. Uh, but they were specifically messages to these seven uh, churches. And then now Revelation chapter 4, really through the end of the book, is uh, you could call the third main section. Because we find out from the very beginning of this chapter uh, in verse number one it says after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And so the rest of the book shows us what's going to take place after this. It, it reveals to us future events uh, that, uh, that was revealed to John while he was there on the Isle of Patmos and uh, we uh, are revealed they revealed to us as well so chapters four and five really are foundational to the rest of the book and uh, these chapters the doors of heaven are open and we have a peek inside of the throne room of the universe Uh, one commentator says that this look reveals heaven to be a place of activity inhabited by other persons objects and constant worship Knowledge that there is such a place of peace and providence where God's will is done enthusiastically and unanimously is an anchor in times of trouble and unbelief. And I'm so thankful that no matter how bad things get in this broken world, that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have a better day to look forward to, have a promise of a better home, and have the promise of a flawless uh, in perfect eternity to spend with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we see verse 1 now let's look at verses 2 and 3. John says at once I was in the spirit you may, may may remember he said that also in chapter 1. He says at once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So the first thing I want us to notice this morning is the one who is seated upon the throne. He he begins this passage or this chapter by informing us that he sees this door standing open in heaven. And uh, I kind of like to imagine the day uh, that that the door is going to be open for me. And the door is going to be open for you if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say, come on up, it's time to come home. The door's open, you've accepted me as your Lord and Savior, the door, the Lord Jesus Christ, and now it's time for you to come home. I'm looking forward to that day. Uh, I'm excited about that day. And John had the privilege to, to, to temporarily, if you will, go through that door Uh, as he's in the Spirit and he's ushered into the very throne room of God. And the first thing that he's drawn to as he enters this door or goes through this door is the one seated on the throne. And there is only one seated on the throne. Uh, Gwen Pugh says that God created, governs, and guides the course of history to its final consummation from this very throne room. It is, if you will, the control tower from which God sovereignly controls the past, the present, and the future. And so John begins to try to explain to us what he sees and what he explains to us is an amazing blend of these awe-inspiring jewels and this emerald rainbow that is surrounding the throne. Can you imagine the explosion of colors that john is probably overwhelmed with at this very moment colors unlike anything that you and i our human eyes have probably ever seen before colors that are magnificent and bright and, and, and glorious and, and, and all of these wonderful beautiful colors that that he is uh, that he is revealed uh, that are revealed to him and these jewels that he describes Uh, Some we're familiar with, some not so familiar with. Um, He talks about, he says, uh, the appearance of a jasper and a carnelian. And uh, uh, some translations uh, translate the word carnelian as sardis or sardius. Uh, and, And then this emerald rainbow. But these two stones, jasper and carnelian, there's something very significant about those two stones. If you know anything about your Old Testament history, you know that the high priest wore a garment. And on that garment were 12 jewels or 12 stones. And uh, each one of those 12 uh, jewels represented one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, it's interesting to note that the two stones that John mentions are the first and the last of the stones on the high priest's garment. So we have this picture here of the the first and the last. We know that Jesus is the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And so these two uh, uh, colors that are represented here probably encapsulate uh, the picture of this this high priest garment with the Jasper and Carnelian stone uh, that are there. Each one of these stones, as I said, represent the uh, 12 tribes of Israel. Now, it's interesting. When you study the book of Revelation, you really need to, uh, and we don't have time or we're not going to take the time to do this uh, in this uh, series, but maybe in the future, uh, you see a lot of things that parallel from the book of, the Old Testament book of Daniel and also the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. And one of the things that we see in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 1, a very similar uh, uh, thing uh, as Ezekiel prophesies, and he says in verse 26, he says, above the expanse, over their heads, There was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. We'll get to the fire here in just a moment and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of what? Of the bow. So there's this rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness, notice, of the glory of the Lord. And Ezekiel says, and when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So we see Ezekiel is describing all of these magnificent colors that he sees. He talks about the gleaming metal and he talks about the the sapphire and he talks about the rainbow. And and it's very similar to what we hear John talking about in Revelation chapter 4. So what we have here... What I believe we have here is the visible glory of God. I believe what we have here is what Moses saw when he went up on the mountain, and the Bible says that when he came down, his face shone for 40 days. They had to literally put a veil over his face because his face shone from the glory of God. It was, it's like one of those glow-in-the-dark things that you have when you were a kid and that you held up to the light and, 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 and it would glow, and then eventually that glow would kind of wear off. Well, that was kind of what you had. You know, Moses was kind of like this glow-in-the-dark guy after he was exposed to the glory of God. And they had to put a veil over his face until that glory wore off. It took 40 days. Can you imagine the picture of this beauty, these colors, this amazing vision that Ezekiel and John and Moses and others saw? Matter of fact, let's look at that. Exodus chapter 24. This is a, this is a, a time when, when uh, Moses went up on the mountain. It says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And it covered uh, the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like what? A devouring fire. Uh, on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So just try with, with your, with your um, broken human imagination, just try to picture all of this in your mind. I, I looked up on, uh, on Google this week, and, and I just punched in Revelation chapter 4 and then clicked on images, and you have all these people that have drawn all these arduous renderings of what they think you know, John saw. And I'm, I'm thinking, there's not an artist alive that can accurately display what John saw. And I am am, am far inadequate to try to express to you what John saw. All I know to do is read it. And all I know to do is try to use my sanctified imagination to picture it. But it's going to be far more glorious than anything that any of us could ever imagine. And we're going to experience that for all of eternity. What a glorious thing to think about. We go back to Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 10. And Ezekiel says here, Now the cherubim was standing on the south side of the house, and when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. So I'm just trying to lay the groundwork. When we, we walk into the throne room of God one day, and when God says, okay, it's time for you to come home, it's time for you to come and be with me for all of eternity, and when we are there ushered into the very presence of God, in the very presence of the throne room of God, I just think we're going to be absolutely overwhelmed with the brightness and with the beautiful colors and, and with the glory of God and the cloud and the thunder and the lightning and we'll talk about in a moment and the fire, the, the fire of the Holy Spirit that we'll talk about in a moment. We're just going to be overwhelmed in the presence of God. And I surely don't know everything about heaven. And I don't know everything I'm going to do when I get there and everyone I'm going to see when I get there. But I do believe that the throne of God is going to be the central piece of heaven. It's going to be what we're going to be focused on. It's going to be, it's going to be what we're going to be captivated by because there is only one listen there's only one who is qualified and deserving to sit on the throne of the universe and that's the one who created it who sustains it and who loved his creation enough to send his son to redeem us from our sin and so we should magnify him today and praise him today and glorify him today may all blessing and honor and glory be his forever and ever Amen. So we see the one on the throne, but now we're introduced to ones surrounding the throne. Look at with me in verse number 4. Number 4 says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. Skip down to verse 6. We're going to come back to verse 5 in a moment. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. It just Can you just imagine that? I can't even begin to imagine that. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Full of eyes in front and behind. Now, you, you Google that, you're going to come up with some weird-looking stuff when you click on images. You, I'm thinking like a spider or a, a bumblebee that you know, has all of these microscopic eyes that we learn about in science that you, know, you really can't see. That's what, that's what I was thinking. But the Bible says that they're on all, all sides of these creatures have eyes. So that's an interesting thought. And uh, the first living creature is like a lion, the second like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So let's talk about the ones around the throne. First of all, John tells us that there are 24 thrones that are around the main throne, the, the throne of God. And on each of these thrones is an elder that's seated there. And these elders, the Bible says, are clothed in white garments, and they have a golden crown on their head. Now, there's a lot of speculation about who these elders are. The Bible doesn't tell us who they are. So we can speculate. Some people think that their 12 represent the the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament and the 12 apostles from the New Testament. 12 plus 12 is... 24. Some people think that they're just 24 representatives of all of humanity that will be in heaven. That, that's a possibility. We don't know. The Bible doesn't specifically tell us. So I could spend the next 20 minutes speculating who these people are, but if God wanted us to know who they were, I guess He would have inspired John to tell us. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time speculating on these people, but a lot of people do think that they're 12 representatives from Old Testament, 12 representatives from the New Testament. And I think that's probably as good a guess as any. They're wearing a crown. Now, there's two main words for the word crown in the the original Greek language. Uh, And this particular word is an interesting word. It's the type of crown that signifies that they have finished and they have been rewarded in victory. So I think a lot of people think that this is probably a represent. This crown is probably a representation of the crown that one day you and I will receive. Uh, that that the Corinthians talks about that that uh, as Christians our works are going to go through the fire of God's judgment, and the wood hay and stubble are going to be burned up, and the gold silver and precious stones we're going to be rewarded for one day. And so some people think that that crown is a representation of the rewards that one day we will receive. Therefore, these 24 individuals are representatives of all of us. Again, speculation, but I think a good guess. But they're all wearing a crown. So we have the 24 elders. Something else around the throne is what? The sea of glass. I want to talk about this for just a moment, even though this is not a creature or an elder, but it is something around the throne, so I'm going to stick it right here. There's a lot of speculation about this as well. Uh, one, I read several different commentaries about this sea of glass, and, and several of them mention the fact that they think this could be a representation of the laver in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament temple or tabernacle, there was a laver. And uh, in this laver was the water, and, and, and they would walk, the, the priest would wash in the laver and then Uh, Go and make the sacrifice, and it's interesting that this laver in the Old Testament temple and tabernacle was made out of. uh, uh, It was a polished washstand that was made of the brass from the mirrors of the women that we know when they left Egypt. uh, God had given them a lot of things to take with them when they left Egypt. And when they got ready to, to make the labor in the tabernacle, uh, the women would take their mirrors, and they're not mirrors like you and I think about today, uh, like glass mirrors, but they were, they were made out of very high polished brass that you could see your reflection in. So they weren't the best mirror as far as seeing your reflection in, but when they were polished, they were very uh, uh, bright, very attractive, very, uh, very, very beautiful. And so they brought these mirrors and, and, and they... they they polished these, they melted them down, they polished them and they made this washstand and so this washstand and, and they filled it with water you can imagine the the picture there of what it would look like this sea of glass. so a lot of people think that that it could be a reference to that laver in the tabernacle. Dr. Barnes uh, thinks that matter of fact he wrote a commentary on, on revelation and I'm really hoping I can get him here to preach one of the messages in our series he's He's agreed to come. We just haven't figured out a date yet. But this is what he had to say about it. I'm going to, it's kind of long, but I'm going to read it because I think it's really cool. He says, The laver was a polished washstand made of brass from the ladies' mirrors, and it reflected the priest's image as he would approach it. He would then have to stand on it to access the water for his cleansing before entering into the holy place. As suggested by some, the laver likely represents the word of God. As one approaches and reads the words of Scripture... It reveals one's spiritual likeness, a reflective picture of the true self. But to get the cleansing needed, one must stand on its truth to receive the washing of the water by the Word. Ephesians 5 26. To enter the holy place and into the presence of God, a person can have no access until he or she is clean, and that comes by the Word of God. But what about this sea of glass mentioned in this passage? What John sees is a substance that was once liquid, but now solidified. And expanding out from the throne, the sea of glass, is the foundation upon which everything else in heaven rests. Is it not true that everything apart from God himself finds its existence founded on the word of God, speaking it into existence? And is it not also true that the very reason believers will have standing before God in heaven is that they will stand on the eternal washing of the water of the word? This imagery, I always hate trying to pronounce that word, and related significance are far too great to dismiss. I don't know if the sea of glass represents the labor. By the way, the labor was called the brazen sea, by the way. But just imagine, just imagine a sea of glass, a sea uh, uh, like, like polished brass that's clear as crystal. And that, that, that it is surrounding the throne and, and, and the beautiful picture there that we see in the tabernacle of, of standing on the, of the water of the word that has cleansed us, that has enabled us to approach the throne of God. What a beautiful picture that is. Now we have 24 elders, right? We have the sea of glass. And now we got these Weird creatures. I hope that's not sacrilegious to say weird, but boy, they sound weird to me. Four living creatures that are full of eyes, right? And they remind John of four things. They remind John of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. In other words, each one of them represents one of these things from creation a lion an ox a man and an eagle and again a lot of speculation as to what these four things represent some things uh, some people think that they represent the four different uh, aspects of the uh, of of things that god created the the eagle represents all the birds god created and the and the lion represents all the wild animals god created and the ox represents all of the all of the domesticated animals that god created and man of course represents all people that god and i'm thinking well where are the fish That's what it is. Did the fish get left out? I mean, God did create the things in the sea. Did they get left out? I don't know. I, I don't know what these things specifically relate to. Some people think that these are representatives of some of the attributes of God that we see in each of these created beings. Again, we could speculate they're full of eyes and that may be a reminder to us that God sees all. His omniscience, his knowledge and his his omnipresence, the fact that God sees all, again, could be part of the point here. But I have to think back to those 24 elders, and I think back to the fact that they could be representatives of all of the people that will one day be in heaven. And if they are that, would you be represented there? That's a good question. Would you be represented there? Do you know that you know Christ today? Do you know for sure that one day when you leave this world and take your last breath that you are going to be ushered into the presence of God because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? You can know if you don't already know. So we see the one sitting On the throne, we see the thing or the people and and the sea of glass around the throne. But there's one last thing I want us to notice this morning, and that is the activity. I told you we'd come back to verse 5. Look at verse 5. The Bible says, From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Some of you thought, man, when I get to heaven, I won't have to ever have to go through another thunderstorm. The Bible says there's going to be thunder and lightning. And it won't be dangerous as it is now, in the sense that we have to be af- afraid of it. But again, I think we see the power of the Word of God uh, demonstrated in this these flashes of lightning from around the throne, the rumbling and peals of thunder coming from the throne, and then around this are these seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, if you were part of our series, when we looked at Revelation chapter 1, we talked a little bit more about the seven spirits of God and how that, that probably is a reference to the seven uh, fold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And uh, these flames... These seven flames represent that sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Again, we go back to the book of Exodus. See a very similar thing that happened in Exodus 19, verses 16 and 17. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. What happened before they met God? There was this this cloud and the lightning and the thunder again, signifying the power of God, signifying the fact that, that we should humble ourselves before God because He 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 controls it all. He's the sovereign uh, sustainer of the universe, and and lightning and uh, thunder manifest God's power, which should cause us to respect Him. And as we come into the presence of a holy and omnipotent, omnipotent God, we should do so in awe and reverence. Please understand, please understand, God is not a feeble, weak-kneed grandfather humped over and sitting in a rocking chair on heaven's uh, front porch. God is the all-powerful u- uh, ruler of the universe. The winds and the waves obey His will. Remember when Jesus said, Peace, be still. They were amazed, even the winds and the waves obey his will. So there's this thunder and lightning around the throne. There's these seven torches, which I said earlier, represent the seven spirits of God and the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then notice verse number eight. The four living creatures, remember we talked about them a minute ago, each of them had six wings. Now if you know anything about Isaiah chapter six, go back and read that. In Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah had the vision of the, uh, I think it was a cherubim or seraphim. I always get those two confused. There was these creatures, and they had six wings. Two they covered their face. Two they covered their feet. Two they flew. Maybe these are the same creatures that Isaiah saw. You can go back and read that in Isaiah chapter 6. The four living creatures, each of them had six wings. They're full of eyes. we talked about that. And day and night, they never ceased to say, it. same thing that Isaiah heard, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and uh, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever the 24 elders what do they do they fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and they take these crowns that they've been wearing. And they they cast their crowns before the throne. Saying worthy are you. Our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. and By your will. They existed. And were. Created. These creatures. Magnify God's holiness day and night. And as these creatures magnify God's holiness and give to him the glory and honor, these 24 elders fall down and cast their crowns at his feet. They celebrate the worthiness uh, of God to receive all glory and honor and power because he is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And I kind of like to believe that maybe these 24 elders do represent all of us because one day those crowns that we have received for uh, the little things that we did on this earth for the glory of God, we're just going to take them off and we're going to say we're not even worthy. To wear these, Lord, I'm, I'm I'm throwing them at your feet because you're the only one worthy. What a beautiful picture. Doctor Barnes says this about those crowns. He says this is the victor's crown. It indicates personal achievement, where all of God's people are rewarded according to their works. For example, the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is to put all Christian works through the fire of uh, of refinement, and only that which is done purely for Christ will survive the refiner's fire. The wonder of placing these crowns at the foot of the throne shows the ultimate worship of God expressed by believers in heaven. In that most precious moment, listen to this now, in that most precious moment, the only desire the saints will have more than anything else is to give back to God all that He deserves because of who He is and for all that He has done. So as we peer into the throne room of God, we see his awesomeness, we see his power, we hear of his holiness, we see his glory and his splendor, and we his magnificence, and we realize that true worship in his presence is anything but flippant and meaningless. And if true worship in heaven is flippant, is not flippant and not meaningless, I would dare say that true worship right here and right now should not be flippant either. We should approach God's throne with respect and with uh, honor and glorify and magnify Him not with some flippant, half-hearted attitude, but with all of our heart because He is worthy of that worship. We see that all throughout Scripture. We're told to come into His presence with singing. We're told in John 4 that those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We're told in Psalm 95, 6 that we are to kneel before the Lord, our Maker. was the last time you have just been so overwhelmed by the goodness of God that you just fell to your knees and said, God, You are worthy of my life and my worship. Isaiah twelve five says to sing praises to the Lord. We're told in Psalm 29 to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name and worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. We're told in Hebrews twelve twenty eight to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We're told more than once to worship Him in the splendor of His holiness. And our worship down here should not be flippant because our worship up there is not going to be flippant. With eyes of faith, we need to realize that we are continually in the presence of God. We are not in the throne room of God this morning, okay? But the God of the throne is here with us. Jesus said where two or three are gathered together in His name, He is in our midst. You realize that? We are not in his presence, but he is in our presence. We should honor him. We should worship him. We should magnify him. And by the way, he doesn't somehow miraculously just live inside these four walls. You take him home with you when you leave in the person of the Holy Spirit because he lives inside your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's interesting, you see it in Isaiah chapter 6, you see it in Revelation chapter 4, that the holiness of God is emphasized. There's a lot of attributes that these creatures could have been singing about, or talking about. They could have been talking about God's love, they could have been talking about God's grace, they could have been talking about God's mercy, they could have been talking about a lot of God's attributes, but the attribute that they chose to focus upon is God's holiness, The fact that God is completely separate from sin. And I'm afraid today that that we don't want to talk about God's holiness in fear that we might offend somebody, in fear that that, that somebody will, will mistake us for being legalist. I'm going to tell you, God is still holy. And He says, I am holy. He says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And what does it mean to be holy? Does that mean I got to wear a long robe and I got to, you know, sit in some weird pose and and, and you know, mumble? No, it has absolutely nothing to do with holiness. I, I like to use marriage as a, as a picture of holiness because when when you go when, when you stand before the marriage altar and you take your marriage vows, you're doing two things. Number one, you're you're you're, you're forsaking all others, right? You're not saying to, to your future wife, out of all the women that I love, you're my favorite. No, you're saying there are no other women. I'm forsaking all others. Right? That's, that's one aspect of separation. I'm separating myself from all others. But Then he's, you say uh, that, that basically, in essence, I'm giving myself to you. You're giving yourself to me. I'm embracing you as my forever spouse. And, and we see the same thing in, 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 in holiness is that, that we're saying, God, I'm only worshiping you. I'm forsaking all of the other idols and all of the other gods and I'm, I'm only going to worship you and I'm bra- embracing you as my own. Giving myself to you. And when God's people didn't do a very good job of that, God referred to it as spiritual adultery. And so he tells us in God's Word to come out from among them and be separate. That's the idea of holiness. And that's emphasized over and over and over again throughout Scripture, even though it's unfortunately not emphasized in many of our churches anymore. It's still in God's Word. So let me close with three things. Number one, there is only one on the throne of the universe, and we're not Him. Sometimes we have... Even though we may not say it with our lips, we kind of live like it with our lives that, you know, I'm on the throne of the universe and the world revolves around me. No, it doesn't. We're not God. Never have been God. And like what the Mormons may teach, we never will be God. There's only one: the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and we're not Him. And so we should worship Him, we should love Him, we should serve Him because He is worthy. He is creator, He is sustainer of the universe. There's only one secondly he's made one way for us to enter heaven and his name is Jesus that's it only, Jesus said I am the door Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life Jesus said I am the bread of life Jesus said I am the water of life he didn't say I am a way he didn't say, I am a bread. He didn't say, I am a water. No, he said, I am the. The article is there in the original language It's important because he is the only way that you and I are going to get to heaven. We're not going to get to heaven through a church. We're not going to get to heaven through our parents. We're not going to get to heaven through doing good works. We're not going to get in heaven by trying to turn over a new leaf. We're not going to get to heaven because we did better. We're only going to get to heaven because we abandon ourselves and we embrace the Savior. There's only one way there's only one and i hope you know him and if you don't know him you can and then lastly he is worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise and the cool thing is we don't have to wait till this day to give it to him we can give it to him all along our journey and then be able to give it to him perfectly on that day when we're in the throne room of God. But we're not there yet. Until we get there, we ought to be practicing. Right? We ought to be practicing. Giving God our worship. Giving God our best. Giving God our praise. Giving God our honor. Giving God ourselves. We talked about last week. Presenting ourselves to him as that living sacrifice, which is a reasonable service, which is our spiritual worship.